everybody. Welcome back to The Bond. David Schwab here. We've got a three-part podcast. We've never done that before. A three-part trading card podcast with Panini executive Jason Howarth, Loop founder Eric Doty, and active trading card buyers Marshall Osborne and Josh Ong. We dig into the current craze and what's different now so that there's long-term success and it's not just a fad. There's also a ton of learning throughout the conversation. I learned a lot about friction points being solved for buyers, how to understand the value of each card, grading, ripping, breaking, junk wax, PSA population count, eBay, what sport is undervalued and what to expect next. Enjoy the Trading Card Podcast. All right, I'm joined by uh, Jason Howarth, VP of Marketing, Panini America. Jason, you've been at Panini for 10 years-ish, but the last six months, the last 12 months, at least from someone on the outside, seem very different than maybe what the previous nine years have looked like. Is that true? Or I would say we started to see this this curve coming. We saw this, you know, that we saw this coming like 18 to 24 months ago when, you know, when we started to hit the Luka Doncic, Trey Young rookie class for NBA, things started to kind of pick up our prism product. People started getting really excited about um, and jumping in on and and that that prison brand has been something that's just been off the charts throughout all of this across all of our sports. But I would say, you know, 18 to 24 months with Luca and Trey coming in as rookies really kind of set the set the, set the stage. Um, and then you roll into you know last year's NBA class with John Morant, Zion Williamson, and Tyler Hero and you know, Rui Hachimura and Kobe White. And so it just started to escalate right from there. Um, you know, and then of course we get hit in the pandemic and the world of sports completely stops. Um, but the only thing that kind of existed in sports was, you know, us and video games. And so, you know, we were the one thing that we're able to, you know, maintain that connectivity to the player um, you know, on our cards and, and his product was going out. And then you roll into this, this last year's NFL class with, you know, Justin Herbert and Tua and Joe Burrow. And I mean, what an amazing NFL rookie class we had this past year. Um, you know, that just continued to propel it. But go, so go back 18 to 24 months because Luca and Trey are obviously wonderful players. And, and even uh, Moran, Zion and Tyler and Justin Tua, you go through all those. Yeah. Every year there's good rookie classes and I get yeah. there are certain rookie classes that are better, but was there something else 18 to 24 months that triggered it? I mean, was it truly just the rookie class felt different? It just, it, it feels like if there was a momentum of a different way people were collecting or investing. Yeah, no, know. that's a good point. So, I mean, I think the, you, you know, you, you start with case breaking and, you know, for those that don't know, you know, case breaking is essentially, uh, you know, a group of people that get online and they're live streaming, opening up boxes, of, you know, cases of products. And in the case of the NBA, there'd be 30 spots and every spot would be, you know, designated to a specific team. So you might get the Washington Wizards cards, I might get the Boston Celtics and someone else might get someone else. And as those cards come out of that case break, every Washington Wizard card that comes out goes to you. Every Celtic goes to me. And so that actually that case breaking mentality started six to seven years ago. And so people were in it and there were 
slowly getting engaged. And what happened is, is, is case breaking kind of like grew and really blew up. You know, more people started to see what cards looked like. They looked very different from when I was a kid, yeah. right? Like just so different. Um, and so, you know, you, what happened is you went from, you know, your local hobby shop to now a global community where people are sitting there watching people open up other product and seeing what the cards look like. And so, you know, in August of 2019, even before then, but August of 2019, we launched our social platforms in China, um, you know, with the idea that we we're going to build up, you know, our base over there. We knew that there was strong excitement and energy for NBA basketball and our NBA trading card products, um, you know, second, you know, followed by our soccer products. Um, so we started building out those social platforms in China. And then in April of 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, we, la we launched our direct-to-consumer uh, platforms in China through Tmall and WeChat. Um, and so, you know, we were able to expose more people, grow the category over there. And as you grow the category there from a global perspective, you know, it starts to impact those secondary market sales of product as well as the demand. So because there's only, you know, the demand is not infinite, right? It's like, you know... It, the DNA of trading cards has always been about scarcity, you know, and so really holding true to sticking to the scarcity part, you know, so that we can maintain the long-term value of those products is really important. And so you've got a huge increase in demand as more people come into the market and, you know, especially over the pandemic, you know, people, whether it was, I used to collect when I was a kid and now I'm finding the cards that I used to collect or, Oh wow! I didn't even know that they were doing this stuff. Let me, you know, just it's case breaking is probably the best socially distant community activity you could you could have. Mm. Uh, yeah, I I did the nostalgia thing and I went through all my cards and I realized that I was part of the junk wax era that I didn't even understand what that meant. But the, those cards were flooded in the mid nineteen eighties yeah. uh, in baseball for sure. So when did we go from I was looking at my 1985 tops rookie, whatever. Yeah, seven hundred ninety. What do you say that? It means that you, you, you and I are the same age. So I was like, you know, I mean, the the card that I was jacked over when I when I got it, and I still can envision everything about it in my head. Is 1987 Donruss rated rookie Bo Jackson? You know, yeah. that was the card, and man, when I hit that card, man, this is someday this card's gonna help buy me a house. Um, <laughs> You know, but like you, it was a junk wax error, error and, um, you know, those manufacturers just overproduced and saturated the market to the point where it devalued everything. Right. And, and two, without technology and without going to a card show, the, the consumer didn't know that. The consumer right. knew you knew you had a Bo Jackson. To, so to you and your buddies, it was worth a fortune. Yeah. Right. Te technology obviously changed a lot of that. So in that 1985 set I'm talking about, I think there's 792 cards. And so your player is one of that. Maybe there was an all-star card. When yeah. did we shift? And, and I see it with your guys' cards. When did we shift to the rainbows? And there is just a base card. So for everyone, just a base color card. And then there's backgrounds for others. So LeBron may have eight different cards. Some are blue background, some are green, some are whatever. When did that shift so that there became limited editions in each of these sets? 
So, I mean, Panini's been in the U.S. market for 10 years now. So 2009, they came in, became the exclusive trading card partner of the NBA. So we've been, you know, a partner exclusively with the NBA for 11 years. But literally an entire generation of basketball players have grown up collecting our cards now, which is awesome. Uh, absolutely love it when I talk to those guys and they're like, yeah, I collected cards as a kid and knowing that they're Panini cards. Right. But um, so there's always been inserts, right, in products. Um, you know, whether you mentioned like the all star ver- ver- version of a card that might show up in a pack or like the stats leaders or whatever, those types of inserts. You know, there's always been inserts that, been a, that have been a part of a product uh, forever. But when you started to expand, like Prism came out in uh, its first year was 2012. Um, I believe 2012 or 2013 was the first year of our Prism brand. Um, you know, and we had those unique colors that were tied to the Prism. So Prism, for those that don't know, is uh, a metallic holographic look. Um, you know, the colors pop off the card in light. Um, and then you've got your base version, which is typically a silver. Uh, and then you've got a whole bunch of different other, what we refer to in the industry as parallels. You know, you might have a red version red parallel, a blue version, a green version, a purple version, you name it, a camo version, a pink version. And every single one of those has a value equated to it. You know, there's only so many greens, there's only so many reds, there's only so many purples. And so those mixes, you know, create another secondary market value because they're they're more rare than the silver base version. Mm. And then you add rookies and then you add the autographs and then you add the patches that are in there. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a fascinating how scarcity has been. It's the same set, but then there's just different scarcity within each, which is very different. So yeah. as people are going back to nostalgia and I'm going back and looking at my cards, realizing they're not worth anything. <laughs> is it is it me, though? Is it the 45 to 50 year old that's coming back into this wave? Or is it the 15 to 20 year old, 25 year old that is the the next buyer of this? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we, in the case of the NFL, we produce 36 different brands per year. So Don Ross is the Panini brand, Score is a Panini brand, you know, brands that we grew up with as kids, right? Contenders is a Panini brand, Prestige and so forth. And so they all are kind of priced differently as you kind of go up the scale, right? So you start at $4.99 a pack, you get it at Walmart and Target. Our Prism brand, like I talked about, you know, $9.99 a pack or whatever, you can get it at Walmart and Target and hobby stores. Now, now under lock and key, these yeah. trading cards, it's yeah. just unbelievable. Exactly. And so they're, they're designed to, you know, bring new collectors or lapsed collectors back into the market. Um, you know, and then you scale up, you've got a product like National Treasures, which, you know, retails for, you know, 500 to $750 a box, depending on the sport, you know, and there's 10 cards in it. But, you know, that one of one NBA logo man in National Treasures of the number one overall pick, as long as that guy is balled out and done what he's supposed to do is going to be the, the card of the year that you typically want to get. Um, and now what you're seeing is that those prism cards, um, you know, which you can find at mass retail and hobby stores are the ones that are, you know, also kind of rivaling, rivaling those high end brands, um, you know, because of the look, because of the unique color design and the parallel to them. So, 
Um, in terms to answer your questions, like who's coming into the market, we've got, I mean, man, there are kids. And, and this is the thing we we just talked about, like technology. I've seen so many kids sitting there opening up on YouTube, you know, ripping packs. We've got, you know, um, kid influencers that have like started their own, you know, daily programming, weekly programming, um, you know, podcasts, you name it, just talking about products. Um, and then you've got case breakers and the case breaker market has been usually that, you know, 20 to 34 year old that's jumping into the game. You know, wife is going to, you know, kill him if he's going to spend $1,500 on a box, but it's okay if I drop, you know, 50 or $75 for a spot and I get, you know, a team and I get some of those cards from that high end product. Um, you know, so that's been the, you know, that's been kind of the, the, the rise where that that's coming. And then I think you're starting to get, we always had the 40 to 55 year olds, but the, but now we're getting the 40 to 55 year olds that are coming back into the category. Now thinking about it as an investment class, you know, and a diversification. So, you know, we've had the 40 to 55 year old, you know, traditional baseball guys, right. That have been in the, in the space. Now I, I'm using air quotes and God, I'm thinking, that 40 to 55 year old, I'm now in that range. That's you, um, <laughs> right in the middle of it. <laughs> so, so it's probably 60 year olds, uh, you know, 40 to 60 year olds that are in that space now, like looking at it as an investment class, um, you know, in addition to all these other people that are in the space for whatever, for whatever reason. I, I bought uh, in the last week, um, a bit for learning, a bit for my son for his birthday. I'm not going to go as far as an investment, um, mm -hmm. but on loop on the app. And as I told you, we're going to have uh, Eric on, on as part of this broader pod kind of series about this. Yeah. And I was fascinated because I, I'm every day I'm learning more about yeah. the different areas. And I get a, uh, a Zion rookie and uh, prison. Yeah. And there's really the guy who's opening it like, Oh, cools out. Like no, really no reaction. And then I got a Lamello rookie and it had a different color and the guy's reaction was off the chart. So it is fascinating to the novice yeah. watching and learning because there's a lot more to it, at least if you did want it on an investment side yeah, than like what the, we used to know. Yeah, the black variation is like the you know, the Holy grail. If you get the black variation of, you know, the top rookie, that's the one where it's like, oh, that's the one of one, right? There's only one black variation of that player mm -hmm. in that product, um, you know, parallel, right. Uh, or color variation. Right. Yeah. So, you know, people get jacked up on that they get jacked up on, you know, the greens and the reds or like, you know, some of the, you know, mosaic, um, backgrounds that are just super hot. Um, you know, they'll get super excited over that. It was funny. We were um, it, a few months ago. Um, a, uh, a few months ago, there was a Rob Kardashian bought like a, a bunch of cases. Um, and, you know, they, the, the, guy, the guy at the hobby store just started opening up the, the packs for him. And they pulled out this like, you know, rare Tom Brady card. And the thing just blew up. And, and, you know, so, I mean, you know, you appreciate this, you know, from your world. Um, you're always a little bit nervous when you see like that Google alert with your name and TMZ in it. <laughs> right. And you're like, oh, geez. 
And so, you know, sure I've been enough. There. I've you, been yeah, there. yeah, I know you have. <laughs> National Enquirer too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we we will stay we'll keep trading cards out of the National Enquirer for now. But um, but so TMZ does this does a story because at 2:30 in the morning and you know on the West Coast, Rob Kardashian pulls this rare Tom Brady card. Um and you know, just blows up and goes crazy because of the rarity of it. And he pulled it from our mosaic product, um, which was brand new to the NFL this year. Um, you know, spent like, you know, I don't know, ten thousand dollars on, you know, a case or two two um, you know, for the for two cases or one case, whatever it was, and ends up pulling this card that's like easily a six figure card. Um, so so stay there though on the money part because equally fascinating in this is the pricing and the valuation of all of this stuff. And so to me, the two huge players here are eBay and PSA. So PSA, at least from what Ravel said in his last pod, uh, six million plus backlog of cards to be graded. Six million, you know, a year to get your card graded. And I'm thinking to myself, if I'm PSA, do I want to grade all those cards? Or is the market better if I don't grade the cards? I thought it's just mm -hmm. an interesting. And then on the yeah. eBay side, where you can look at what's been sold, mm -hmm. and that feels like the closest, uh, at least a novice could understand what fair market value is. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a couple of different ways to kind of look at it. And I would say there's, you know, three other well there's three kind of ways to look at it right so there's okay. the you know the ebay side where you can go on and that's where people you know have historically been able to look and see what past sales were what's on the market right now if they wanted to pull out a quick like hey i need to find any kind of patrick mahomes card for my kid for his birthday boom hop on ebay find the one that you know is within your price range hopefully um you know and and just get it you know, um, then there's the, you know, the, the value equation changes from once you, once you refer to like just a regular card, what they now call raw cards, that not, which is essentially non-graded cards, right? Mm -hmm. There's going to be a market for that. Uh, but then the graded cards, you know, puts a, you know, an escalator on the value of that card. You know, and that, you know, depending on the quality of the grade, the best grade you can get is a 10. You know, if you get a nine or a nine and a half, the value of that card, you know, triples in some cases from what, you know, the raw version of that card is. Um, so, but you've got a whole bunch of people that are coming into the market where they, you know, every card is, you know, in their mind is like, oh my God, this is going to be super value valuable. I'm going to go get it graded. You know, so you've got that side of it. You've got obviously Beckett historically has always had the pricing, um, you know, is another vehicle. And then you've got this, the auction platforms coming into the space like Golden, you know, coming into the mix where historically you've, you know, only looked at those guys from a memorabilia point of view, you know, and, you know, championship rings, jerseys, you name it, helmets, you know, those types of things have fit within that golden auction format where in the last, you know, year, he's kind of diversified the business and said, hey, you know what, I'm going to take the, you know, something that is not as rare as memorabilia, but still very rare in finding these, you know, top graded, you know, these highly graded cards and bringing them into the auction platform. 
And so now you're seeing in, you know, investment vehicles where eBay was driving most of those sales initially. Now it's like, well, wait a minute, look at what's happening at Golden Auctions. He sells a Patrick Mahomes National Treasures rookie card for $800,000, you know, a week and a half before the Super Bowl. How much um, do you guys, how much do you think from a product side that you guys actually control what the value is based on, um, design and scarcity mm -hmm. versus, I mean, obviously the player has to perform. Yeah. 100%. But versus the consumer market picking and choosing. I, I don't know. I, my mind goes to Robinhood and GameStop and AMC and, and an audience that moved a market. Yeah. So do, do consumers have, has that ever come into be up or down, I guess, but just the, the or is it all just one fluid system do you think um i think we have a huge we play a huge role in it obviously you know consumers latch on to the brands and figure out what brands are going to be the ones that are important to them but i mean you know that prism brand and you know the stuff that that's happening in the market for prism and mosaic and our national treasures and our high-end products our high-end products have always been the you know the primary drivers right now you've got mass retail products or, you know, stuff that's a little bit more available, I should say, more widely available than a high-end brand, you know, like Prism or like Mosaic that are, you know, driving the value. So there's a, you know, there's a, there's a benchmark to it, you know? So, you know, it was funny. I saw this interesting stat a few months ago, uh, actually, you know, about a month and a half ago, where they talked about the growth of Bitcoin and they said that Bitcoin was up 350% in the last year. A Luka Doncic rookie card was up 750%. So just to understand what's happening in the marketplace, we're not talking about Robinhood. We're not talking about GameStop. Yep. Like we're talking about a legit investment class. Yeah. And on top of that, um, you know, and to be clear, I was not comparing the industry yeah. to Robin. No, 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 I'm I know. More curious if consumers can, yeah. but that's, that's a fascinating, that's an apples yeah. to apples real yeah. number. And, and then, you know, and the fact that, you know, trading cards have historically in the last 10 years outperformed the S and P 500, like, you know, in secondary market, which is, you know, when you start, how, how, long, people, how long was that over how long? Over the last 10 years. See, and I think that's an important step because I do think we are we are in a moment during COVID and there has been another jump. And I think there are a lot of people that are fearful or talk about a fad or a quick whatever. Mm -hmm. But some of those stats, you know, put put a line on it and say, no, 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 this, yeah. this has been going on for some time. There's more exposure to it now, but yeah. this, this is a, a new class. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing too is that, and there's a couple of different ways to look at it too. I mean, you know, it's definitely not a fad because the, the other thing that is, you know, where, it, you know, where in the eighties, they saturated the marketplace, you know, and then, you know, now we're very focused on, you know, making sure that that scarcity lies and the value is maintained over a period of time. And you've got a number of people coming into the space. You've got athletes now looking at this, you know, coming into the space you know, you know, is part of investment teams and investment groups. And I mean, obviously they drive the business in terms of, you know, being the, the players on our cards, but then you've got a global marketplace that is real and happening in real time. Nothing is changing in China. If anything, it's growing, you know, we're seeing huge growth in Australia. 
Um, you know, so the Asia Pacific area, they're, they're all jumping in on the trading card game. You know, scarcity, more demand, you know, more demand, you know, more demand than supply. It, this is not a fad that's going away. Um, yep. You know, and we purposely have made sure that we were building value into the product. We talked about, you know, the, the autograph signatures of players, you know, cutting up game, you know, jerseys and putting them into trading cards. You know, we've got precious metals that are embedded in cards, depending on the product, like, you know, gold, you know, 24 karat gold embedded, silver troy ounces and, and embedded in cards, you know, diamonds and other, you know, precious gems embedded in cards. So that there's this uniqueness if you go up the scale, that value is not going to change. I mean, the the value, the cost of a you know a silver troy ounce is you know is going to go up and down, but it's also going to you know depending on the player, it's going to have more value than just the value of the silver that's in the product. Yeah. So, um, you know, definitely not a fad. And I think the I think the key thing and the the thing that we're very focused on is one, making sure that we do not fall into the mistakes of the past, you know, that we don't have a, a, you know, part two junk wax error, right? Because we're so focused on making sure that we build the scarcity. And, and you know, in the 80s, you had, you know, two or three sets per year, maybe, you know, of the, you know, of, of key manufacturers that are out in the market, maybe just one, you know, um, of each of that. So it was like, you just had to constantly print and there was no like numbering system to those cards. Well, you can only number system, you know, value in a, in a product. Once you run out of that number, you need to move on from that product and create a new product. And so that's why, you know, we've, you know, we've built products that have, you know, value ranges and equations so that we can enter, we can bring new people into the market younger people into the market that's at an affordable price at Target and Walmart and hobby stores, you know, where they can get in, you know, and kind of migrate, elevate up the um the price scale eventually as they continue to collect and mature in their collecting. So those are the differences. It's you're not going to see a brand where, you know, for us, like, you know, we've got 36 different brands in our NFL portfolio. We've got 32 to 33 you know, in our NBA portfolio. So it's never going to be like, oh my God, they just overproduced this entire product. No, when we get to the numbering on it, it's time to move on to a new product, you know? So, yeah. So let's, you just talked about football, basketball. Let's close with what's the one sport that the next five years, the inside scoop to the, to the rookie that wants to get ahead of the game. But what, what's the next mm -hmm. sport where you just think it's, the market it hasn't caught up with what the potential could be. I would say soccer. I mean, you know, we we talk about it here in the U.S. Like when when soccer finally catches on in the U.S. market, it's going to be a you know a game changer for the sport. You know, I mean, look, every other part of the world is you know embraced soccer. Um, we obviously have soccer products. We you know we we just released our um, you know our EPL products, uh, our Prism brand. Um, probably about a month ago, uh, signed David Beckham to an exclusive for autographs and memorabilia. Uh, so he's a full exclusive athlete with us now. Um, you know, people, you know, is, is the U S consumer becomes more aware of the caliber of the players that are playing soccer, the value of those players are gonna, are gonna go up. 
uh, and kind of catch up with the value of what's happening in the global marketplace as it relates to soccer on the trading card side of it. Um, you know, NBA is still, I think, a ton of growth. I, the, the thing that you need to, the thing that I think people need to also look at is, you know, where are we in, you know, in this timeline of like new blood coming into a sport, right? So you've got your, you know, you've got your Drew Brees and your Tom Brady on the NFL side. They're kind of like the stewards of the game now at this point and still playing at a dominant level. But then you've got all these other, you know, top quarterbacks emerging that are young, whether it's Patrick Mahomes going into his fourth year, you know, whether, you know, these guys that are coming out is those guys progress and start to become the face of the league, the values of those cards. That's the thing that's so great about the trading cards is that it's always changing because there are new players that are coming in and performing. You know, you look at guys like, you know, God, I mean, even, you know, James Harden, Kevin Durant, and LeBron, and those guys are kind of like the older guys in the, you know, in this in NBA now. And you've got the young guys coming in, whether that be John Morant or Zion or Lamelo, that are coming in and starting to take a foothold, you know, in the in the um, you know, in the sport, which is gonna drive more, you know, fandom globally of those of those athletes. I am joined by Eric Doty, the founder CEO of Loop, a new marketplace for sports fans. I, I've been on there, I uh, hate to admit it, more than I probably should be the last couple of weeks, but um, buying some trading cards, um, watching guys um, rip cards open for me and, and buying some repacks and all these different words that I probably wasn't familiar with a month ago. Eric, thanks for joining me. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's just give everyone just a one-on-one on Loop. So Loop at a high level is a B2B platform. We enable online sellers and brick and mortar card shops to have a suite of tools where they can live stream and sell cards, whether it's packs or boxes or singles through that live video. And everything is baked in um, from notifications to users when you're going live, um, them viewing, uh, making the purchases in the live stream, and then we um, we facilitate all of the sending of the shipments, um, the shipment information to the seller, and we handle all the payment processing as well. So we're kind of like a one-stop shop for an easy way to stream and sell your goods through the live stream. And for the pure novice, share the word loop um, of just even the definite, you know, why you have that as the name. <laughs> So uh, that's an excellent question. So loop is actually the French word for the little magnifying glasses that you use to look at jewelry or now collectibles like sports cards to, to really look for imperfections. And we saw ourselves as kind of your digital loop. So everything we're building kind of revolves around the camera, whether you're, you're broadcasting or you're using it to look at your cards. Um, again, we've only been for, out for about four months. So right now, <laughs> the live e-commerce aspect, but based on what I just said, you can imagine that we have a lot more things planned. How, how surprised were you that that word and name was still available in the ecosystem of startups? Uh, very surprised. I mean, I we got the trademark and I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was surprising. 
I mean, there, it's funny when you search for loop in the app stores is there's like a million apps that are basically just magnifying glass apps. Mm. Um, and But we were really the first one that kind of like honed in on this is our identity. You know, we're, we're building around this. And um, I'm really excited. Everyone seems to respond well to the brand. Uh, that was my segue is uh, there was some feedback we got early, early on. When, when I was pitching and just trying to get feedback about the direction I was going to go. And there was one person, there's absolutely no hard feelings about this. I just thought it was funny is there was this comment of like, I don't think people are going to understand it. Um, like, you know, like, like loop is almost like a little too highbrow. And I'm like, well, if we, if we build the right thing, that's all that really matters. And I, I like that loop is a little bit different. Um, it's not, too on the like we're not the the breaking app or you know we didn't go for something too obvious yeah. so if we ever do slowly expand beyond like sports cards we're not like locked into one category yeah and i think you'll you'll know when you've made it to such a high level when the business is at scale yet there still are people that don't even know what the word means right that you've just built it as a brand name let alone what the original meaning was but you okay. mentioned four months so when did you, where were you working or when was the day when you said there's an opportunity, there's a marketplace, a digital marketplace that's, there's a gap in the market that you started writing on a napkin or a piece of paper, the idea? So January, February of 2020 was when I had already started to get back in the cards pretty seriously before then. And I was looking at we have some prototypes of other features that we'll eventually bring to the app. Um, but we're looking at different things. And January, February is when I really locked in on there's there's a big gap in what people are trying to do with sports cards right now, but nothing is built for them. So we saw that there's a lot of questions of how much are my cards worth that are in the attic? Um, how do I show off my collection? How do I know how much cards are worth? And there's a bunch of different tools um, of various quality in the market today that do that. But the big the big gap I saw was I was starting to buy cards through Instagram where it's what we call breaks. You buy a box or a pack and then they open it live on stream and then ship you the cards. And everyone watching gets to see this happen. And the big gap was you had to leave the stream to go to PayPal or Venmo and pay them. And then also send them your, your shipping information then you'd have to go back to the stream and basically like, hey, I paid you, can you please confirm this is my real name? And it was, it's the experience of the actual seeing the cards being um, opened was such a fun entertainment experience, but everything leading up to it was a disaster. Mm -hmm. And I come from a background of seven years working in at Microsoft in the Xbox division, um, five years working in live streaming with a little bit of video AI machine vision, and then also uh, running a game server concurrently. So I, uh, with a small team, built a very profitable server um, in the Minecraft ecosystem of, of all places. Yeah. Um, so I took all that and went, okay, I see all these pain points. I see where friction can be removed. Let's just go. And we ended up, we, we did some market research to, to validate. We ended up doing a, a beta over the summer and then we launched on October uh, 23rd, actually. So it was four months exactly yesterday. Yeah, amazing the timing. So many businesses have, have accelerated, obviously, during COVID. 
And you can't get to a trade, you can't get to a card store, or I'm sure many are closed, or certainly people can't get to conventions if there is such a thing anymore. Um, but I love the fact that the, at least your mind was racing to this gap before that. So that's just, I'm sure COVID just accelerated what you guys were already thinking. Yeah, for sure. I, I think without a pandemic, um, I think it still would have been successful. But like you said, it definitely accelerated it. And why you said October 23, uh, was it a matter of getting the beta and then just getting to market or was there a, a moment or a game or did you, did you launch it with, I guess, why October 23 versus November or December? Did, was there an actual moment or was just get it up? Um, well, <clears throat> we had just raised our first couple of angel checks in that October. And, you know, up until then, we were fully bootstrapped. I had money saved that I basically wiped building this business. <laughs> you know, if, if, if this is successful, that's going to be one of the, the key starting points is like, I, I basically put myself in the in the poorhouse starting this thing. Um, so we, we raised, uh, we raised a little bit of angel money and it was just a, we need to get this out because every day that we're not validating the market or making revenue, is just putting us one step closer to not existing anymore. Um, so late October, uh, even then we probably should have waited a week, but we just had to get it out. Um, and then right around, you know, after some bug fixes and and promoting it, I'd say late November is when we really hit our stride, and it's just been taking off since then. And what what do you learn? I mean, you get you guys get daily, not daily. Every time uh, a seller comes on, you're getting learning because of the instant feedback. But what are the two or three things that you've learned, both from your the sellers, but also from the guys that are buying me on the site that have forced tweaks or tweaks that you'll make because of it? Yeah, uh, we've. I mean, we've already made a ton of tweaks in just how we we communicate the in-app activities back to the people using the app. Um, one thing I greatly underestimated is the number of people who just put their address in wrong, <laughs> their shipping address. Uh, <laughs> like we, we get, it, it's definitely gotten better over time and we need to, you know, we need to continue building better onboarding for the first purchase. But the number of emails we get where the billing address is hundred percent correct. And then they'll just be like, oh, I, I forgot to put my house number on it. Or, um, you know, it's sometimes like purchasing platforms autocorrect the city based on the zip code and that'll be off. And people just, they don't take that extra second to verify it before they hit complete. Um, and that's, you know, that's a learning experience. We, we take it in stride, like we're an early business, um, but that was definitely one of those moments, the situations where I'm like, okay, we need to rethink how that flow works to help limit, because nobody nobody wants to go into a panic 10 seconds after they make a purchase and go, oh no, I, I did the address wrong. Um, so on top of the, the burden on us to go make the change and communicate it to the seller is, I just don't want buyers to have that mini panic, panic attack. <laughs> what's the, uh, what's, what's more important, the supplier or the demand in getting more card shops and professional collectors on, or, I mean, you need that and the variety to get the fans, but you need the fans, I'm sure, with scale 
to convince the the card shop owner to use the platform? Yeah, so it's we handle it right now as almost an ebb and flow. So we can't have too many sellers because they cannibalize each other and there's not enough buyers. Mm. Um, but if we have way too many buyers, then they're coming to the platform and there's nothing to buy um, because they're selling out. So we we I, I won't be fancy and say there's any algorithm or anything, but yeah, we, we really look at our our daily sales and the feedback that we're getting from the sellers and going, okay, you're you're getting to a point where you you're investing more into the inventory you have. And we have we've onboarded two more sellers, so we really need to look at. Excuse me, we really need to look at onboarding more buyers into the ecosystem. And then as we go on, um, we look at the the daily viewership versus buyer ratio. And as that starts to fluctuate to certain levels, then we go, okay, we can add more buyers safely. Um, and again, we're four months in, so it's we have to be very careful about that. When, there's a point at a business when you you have enough things in place that you can light up the buyer scale and it doesn't have any negative effect on you. Um, and I'd, I'd say we're we're getting pretty close to that. Um, we've been focused so much on just feature development um, that now we're kind of at a place where like we can go back to that scaling and feel that we're in a good place. I on on Sunday afternoon I was in um, I, I'm blanking on who who the seller was. But I was fascinated. It was around 5.30 on Sunday afternoon when uh, the PGA Tour is about to go into playoff. Tony and, and uh, Max are about to go into their playoff. And at that moment, it didn't seem like the group of buyers was that active. And so it was just, it was just the seller engaging in conversation with the people in the room and they're, they're chatting back. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the conversation went to golf and people were at their home. And it it almost felt like, like I stuck around for 20 minutes. No one was buying anything, Mm -hmm. but you had this engaged room. It it felt like I was at a sports bar (laughs) with your buddies. People were probably drinking a beer at their home and just, but have a similar uh, persona, similar hobby, similar passions. And they'd sit around a sports bar, people you don't even know and have a beer and watch. And who do you like and who you don't like? So I, and I'm sure this is part of your guys' evolution, but I could see the content and just the, the destination of just wanting to be in that community too. For sure. For sure. And the, the low latency we have helps a lot with that. There's um, it's less than a second. So the, the yeah. conversation, there's no delay between what you're saying and the viewers hearing it. Um, so, and then when they type something and you reply to it, it just feels like a natural conversation that, that I think has been a huge contributor to that experience. Um, but we almost, when we talk about it and we, we talk about the way, the type of interactions we're trying to build towards is if you think of like a craps table mixed with cheaters. So there's interactions between the buyer happening with the seller. And then there's all the supplemental things that are happening around with the other people who are at the table mm. on top of the fact that you're building this community of people that just kind of like know each other and they get comfortable and you end up lingering there for 20 minutes just talking. And I think that's that's a much better experience than something like Home Shopping Network, where you just you're there for the transaction and then you're you're done. Um, so community's been really important to us. Yeah, I noticed in, in one of the uh, rooms I was in, two of the buyers who were chatting back and forth 
clearly only know each other from these interactions, mm-hmm. but have done it enough where there's, you know, hey, did you get your Kobe yet that you got last week type of thing? Does the does the 9.5 grade look as good as you? So they clearly are following. And it was, it's neat to see like a friend, like that's the digital friendship in the era we live. I also thought interesting, it seems like most of the rooms are open from, I don't know, I'm on the East Coast. So eight to midnight-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and occasionally you'll see something with notifications, lunchtime or sometime in the afternoon, but not as many. I did think for the on your B2B that you shared for the card shop guy, it's perfect. So even when we're back to normal, mm-hmm. they're operating the retail store from, I don't know, nine to five or nine to seven. Well, now all of a sudden their ecosystem has just you know, they've added their e-commerce right to what their brick and mortar shop is too. Yeah, we we have um, we have a father son duo who run a small card shop in Virginia, hmm. and they started using Loop. They were they were obviously they were impacted by the pandemic. They were selling on Instagram, and they used us for one day, and they were blown away. They're like, we've we've done as much sales on one day on loop that it took us a week to do on Instagram. Wow. We just have a super concentrated focus on sports cards and wanting, you know, people coming to us and wanting to buy. And on the flip side, we have a, we had a set of guys who were kind of unsure what their, their business prospects were going to look like because of COVID. And so they started doing breaking for fun um, just to have something to do, make a little bit of money. And they came on loop and they've exploded doing well over six figures in sales to the point that they were able to go um, sign a lease and now they're opening their own brick and mortar card shop. So we kind of have both ends of it happening on loop. And you're right, when once things start getting back to normal and foot traffic, all these stores are still going to have like a back room where they're just doing live breaks all day. And I think it's, you know, that's going to be a significant part of their revenue. Is it hard for, I'm picturing, I haven't been to a convention show since I was you know, 35 years ago when I was a kid, but are, I imagine a lot of the uh, shop owners are 50 plus and you, and you may correct me and tell me I'm wrong, or the, but I'm curious that that generation of owner or seller is, is the digital aspect hard for them? Uh, you know, they didn't grow up digital first and the com- being comfortable about that interaction and breaking online or, or am I misguided and the sellers are way younger than that? Yeah, if, if I'm going to, based on my interactions, I would say you're right in thinking that most store owners are probably in their 40s or older if they've been running the shop for a while. Uh, the good thing is, is most of them have kids who help run the shop or they mm-hmm. have a young, a young person, like a card collector helping them with the shop, whether it's their own kid or not. And if I can't get through to the, the owner, the older owner, like it's always the younger employee who's like, yes, this is, I'm already doing this on Instagram. I'm seeing a ton of people do it. We should definitely try this. And it's, I don't think there's any resistance to it. It's just more of like, they haven't had the visibility to it, but once they see it and see somebody else doing it successfully, there's a light bulb moment of like, oh, we could totally do this. 
And, and in, in closing, Eric, help me talk me through 2.0 without sharing the, the features that you're not allowed to share um, mm -hmm. that. But but guide us at least top line on uh, what a seller or buyer is going to be excited about in thinking about three months, six months, a year down the road for Luke. Yeah, so I think the the biggest thing we can say when we're when we're recruiting is that there are going to be multiple ways to make there are going to be multiple monetization paths um, outside of just the direct selling an item directly to a user through live video. Um, we're going to have other monetization paths. We are looking at what is what is the non-live asynchronous experience look like, both in building anticipation of things to come, but also how do you transact when there isn't a live stream or if there's particular things you're looking for that aren't highlighted in live streams. So that's a big one. And then the other is mostly around how do you manage what you bought and your collection at home, um, managing, understanding what that collection is, what you should do with it um, if you want to show it off. And even beyond that, <clears throat> We we talk a lot about being your online card shop, but you touched on a little bit of like how do we take that and now move it into the online card show space as a live mm -hmm. platform. And you know, I think you're gonna see a lot of that play out over the next year. And we're we're just super excited. Again, these four months have been incredible. I think we've blown past all of our number of expectations. And now it's just, you know, that that scrambling of making making sure that we're we're solid and have the foundation to build all of that future stuff on top of. Joined by Josh Ong and Marshall Osborne, we're talking the buying side of trading cards. As we know, we just finished uh, talking to Panini and figuring out the world from the product side. All right, gents, Josh, I know you're a little bit more of an expert than Marshall is here. So it's we're February 2021. Trading cards are certainly at an all-time high. Um, most people say it's not cyclical. It's not that it was 30 years ago, but there's a lot of other forces that are in play that make it an all-time high. Where, where do you see trading cards right now and the staying power for years ahead from now? Yeah, I mean, I do think they've reached um a, a level of momentum that that's different it's not just a cycle and and uh you know a lot of us collected as kids and that we're coming back to it now obviously with a little bit more money a little bit more strategy um but you know nostalgia is powerful and so i think that's a big part of it and we're seeing i think what we saw is like a hobby graduate into an asset and there are a lot of pieces in the ecosystem and you're talking to some of them that that made that possible even something like grading or e-commerce like the ways that we're able to just standardize and understand like what's something worth um is it a good investment is it something you know something that i want to just collect for fun um i think those are all kind of swirling around so people are allocating um parts of their portfolio toward um toward sports cards as an alternative asset that maybe before you had these super collectors who would do that but it wasn't maybe part of the mainstream consciousness like it's starting to become Marshall, Josh said, money strategy, nostalgia, and turning a hobby into an asset. You, you and I are, are rookies. Rookies in the sense of Josh and, and others. 
Um, is it for you? Is it a hobby that's turned into an asset? Is it a hobby? Um, wh- where do you fall in that? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I missed the I, I was kind of too late on that like early wave of collectors. I'm a, a little younger than the both you guys, so I think I missed that like sports card wave. You know, I, I think what got me back into it was like seeing that my Pokemon card collection was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars if I would have kept on to it. I think my I've been asking my parents to dig it up for the last like couple of months and they don't know where it is. But for me, it's like, I, you know, I've, I've worked in sports. Uh, I'm a, I'm a massive sports fan. I think I'm always looking for interesting ways, interesting investments, interesting ways to make money. Um, and this just seemed like an intersection of the two. So as I, I can kind of ride that second wave, I'm in a position to make a few more bets. It allows me to like, you know, do something, uh, within a passion that I have and also, you know, make some money while doing so. You know, I think, for me, it's like I've been able to have conversations, Dave, with people like you and some other friends that it just as a sports fan are enjoyable to have. And at the same time, like, you know, it's a real investment that I can hold on to, you know, for the rest of my life, you know, for my kids, et cetera, in, in a way that I really had never thought about before. You know, I'm, I'm looking at it as just a pastime hobby to have some fun. But, you know, I think deep down, I also know that if I get lucky, some of this stuff's going to be worth real money if it already isn't. Mm. And Josh, that asset for you is it is buying cards a business? Do you look at it like that, the same as you would evaluate your stock portfolio? Yeah. So when I first got into um, to sports cards, I actually was reallocating some of the other things that I collected. So I sold off some sneakers, um, some limited sneakers that I had that were worth you know a few thousand. I sold off some streetwear like Supreme and things like that, and just things that I had collected because I had noticed that there was interest in them. Um, so I started moving some of those over into sport cards and um, there definitely was a sense like, oh, okay, like some of my kind of more out there portfolio um, allocation, that's what was where my cards were going to come from. Um, you know, long-term, I think I have to make a decision, like some of these have gone up. And then obviously when you start ripping um, and you know, opening packs, like some of those, the way that box prices are, if you open a box, there's actually a really high likelihood that you might lose money on it because the the chase cards those are the ones that are going to really make make the money right so like some of these really premium sets there are a hundred thousand two hundred thousand dollar cards in there but then most of them are worth you open it it's more a fraction of what it's at on a street street value so stay um, there, jo- josh stay there for one second so sure l- let's do a specific example so give me an example of a box that you could open that's there's a card in it worth quarter million dollars yeah like the um immaculate uh nba um last year with the zion and and jaw it's just a really good rookie class um a potentially generational talents that we'll see right um there was a lot of interest and there's a, there are cards called like the um the logo man which is like when they cut up a jersey and make jersey um make patch cards they get the logo um, and you can get like the Jordan logo, or you can get like, you know, a, a piece of the team name or, you know, laundry tags. There's all sorts of things that you can cut. You can cut helmets for football players, but some of them are, are like really special. And I think, you know, when, when those boxes came on the market, some of the buyers were saying, Hey, if you pull this card, I want you to know, I'll, I'll buy it from you immediately for 250,000 or, mm. or however much. So, um, so, so that's priced into the box. You know, so if you're a regular person who's just, I want to open it, like you're, you're basically, you're paying for that guy's logo, man, because unless you get it, 
you know, a lot of the other cards, there's, you know, like you look at the set list and there's a bunch of like, not every rookie is really sought after. Yeah. But I've every, been, um, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, let me, let me add and then Marshall chime in because I, I, I certainly has asked this question to Marshall too, in this, that if every card that came out of a box was graded as a 10 in this one to 10 uh, era, then I get that. I, to me, the fascinating piece is whatever comes out of a box, you don't, it, it might be a set, it might be perfect, but it could be a seven or an eight too, right? Sure. And then that card that was 250 grand that you said, maybe it's worth 10. Like, is that right? Or am I thinking that when I grew up as a kid, those cards weren't cut really well and those cards, the color wasn't great? Are all the new cards out of the box? that are clean are they if you graded them would they all be nines and tens or no no so um different sets have have different kind of grading patterns um mm. so so one problem with uh grading the really nice kind of thick cards that are um player signed as opposed to like a sticker auto is that you know players come in for their auto session they like pick it up you know do their thing and drop it on the thing and and then they walk away <laughs> And, and then when a grader gets that, like there's going to be some surface damage to it and they just have to grade it. So, so there are different expectations. Um, but even like I was collecting some, um, the Luca rookie year, uh, and his, one of, one of his sets, I think it was like optic or something had really bad print runs. And so there were print lines on the on the cards. Mm -hmm. And so getting, and this is something that's really interesting when you start looking at like the PSA population count, you know, you can actually look and say for a specific set for a specific card, what is the rate that it's, it's grading at? Um, how many, uh, you know, of the entire pool are, are actually grading like that. I, um, I opened, uh, some packs on, on loop, um, a few, which, which I'm now a seed investor in cause I was spending so much, but, um, <laughs> And one of my first, one of my first big purchases was the 2000 Bowman, which is the, the um, NFL, which is Brady's Brady. rookie year. Yeah. Um, and so we were looking for a Brady rookie card and we got, I hit it and it was like, everyone went nuts in the chat and, and, but, it, but the cards were like stuck together because they're 20 years old. And so there was um, when the, when they kind of unstuck, like, you know, there was just a little ding on the top and it's not the breaker's fault. It's just these cards sat in a box somewhere for 20 years. And, and, you know, they're, they're kind of old school, kind of waxier card. Um, so even now, like pack fresh cards of these old, um, these old sets aren't necessarily going to grade at a 10 uh, or a nine. So, the same so thing literally happened to me. I pulled, I did the, I didn't pull a Brady rookie, but I bought a couple <laughs> of those Bowman packs and I saw when he was pulling them apart, you could see the artifacts yeah. of the card ahead of it. I mean, Josh, as, as a novice kind of rookie in this, and I, I've asked you some of these questions offline, but like, you know, should I be looking, should I be looking at the population reports on like card defects based on print runs as I'm thinking about what boxes or packs to buy? Like, I guess that's one of the things David and I have talked about a lot is, you know, how do you, as someone who doesn't know the difference between uh, a prism, this and a Don Russ, that, and a whatever this other Panini product is like, how, how do you think about, you know, not, not like trying to tackle too much of information because there's too many things out there you can take into account, but like, are there some of those things where it's like, yeah, you should, here's the four stats to look at to determine whether you should buy this pack versus this pack or 
this box this is versus this box beyond you know the, if the rookie class is good because that's kind of where i think about it is like is the rookie class good and is it a more premium product in the context of all the different card products out there but i have never thought about printing errors as a percentage sure. of population right yeah and i will say like to panini and others credit like i think part of the reason for this resurgence is some of the innovation in these like holographics and 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 the card printing and and just the experience of the cards and and some of these um, inserts and parallels just get really cool looking, um, and so I realized that they're upping their game on the printing side, but there are flaws in some of these, some of them older and some of them newer, um, where there are you know issues with the factory. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, there there's like a a flow chart that I think it's, it's easy to go down as a collector, which is like, what kind of strategy you want to do? Do you want to just, you know, get boxed at retail and rip yourself? Like, is that what gives you joy? Um, are you really in this to collect and you're, you're, you're picking players, then maybe you want to just buy slabs, um, slabs being like great pre already graded cards. You buy them off eBay or, you know, other collectors, and then you don't have to worry about handling the cards. You don't have to worry about, you know, like I think in some ways, like, because the slab is in case it's, it's protected, but then also like, you know, you can, there's just a much more standardized pricing point for it than say um, a raw card, right? Because sometimes the raw cards on eBay, they're cards that someone looked at and said, this isn't worth sending in a grade. And they might have some like surface damage on it that doesn't really show up in the picture. Um, but, you know, sometimes a general rule of thumb is like, you know, a, a raw card, like the PSA nine of it might be somewhere like two to three X, um, the, what a, what a raw card would sell for. And then if you, if you get a 10, which is, you know, the highest score from PSA, then it could be somewhere like five X. But and, is and it what the likelihood, but well, what's the likelihood of somebody sitting at home from any of their cards that they have an ungraded 10 gotta be remote, right? Yeah. I mean, I would say, it is rare to pull a 10 out of a pack on your own. Um, that doesn't mean it's not impossible. And I've, I've seen threads where people talk about like, okay, what are the cards that you bought on eBay and graded versus cards that you pulled? Which one of those got 10? It just depends. Um, it's certainly possible. And I think, you know, uh, the deeper you go into collecting, the more knowledgeable you get about opening the packs and handling them and, and, you know, which sleeves work and card saver versus top loader and things like that. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's a whole, whole train so um so that there's certainly like you could go say like are you gonna buy product and open it yourself are you going to um buy slabs you know buy raw and try and submit for grading um those are all different strategies that you could have um within that i think it's certainly worthwhile to think about you know which products are are more desirable to collectors and um you know which years have the better rookie classes and you know, some, some classes are just really stacked. Um, when I was chasing like Mahomes rookie cards, you can get Deshaun Watson is like Christian McCaffrey. Like it was a good class and there's like a bunch of other players. And so, um, and even like LeBron's rookie class, you've got who else like Wade, um, it's a pretty deep, and, pretty deep yeah. draft class. And, and so like, you know, whereas like people talk about like the Brady class and it's like, you kind of just are going for that Brady one and maybe not. So everything's kind of priced based on what's in there. Um, mm. And you can certainly, you know, I, I like how public it is. Like, you you know, I was on PSA today looking at like LeBron's pop counts for his, um, 
his like uh, tops rookies because I'm, I'm thinking about getting one. And, and so you can see like, oh, okay, there are 3,000 something PSA 10s in, in this LeBron rookie card. The one in the white suit, you know, the classic. Yeah. Um, Didn't somebody pull that on loop? Didn't yeah, somebody pull um, it on loop a couple, couple weeks ago? pulled on loop recently and the boxes were going for like $6,000. <laughs> and it's kind of, kind of a risk because I think it's something like there's an 80% chance that you'll get a LeBron in that box. But, but like, you know what, one out of five boxes just might not even have the LeBron. So you might spend $6,000, not pull a LeBron, you know? And then if you pull LeBron, it's like, is he a PSA eight, nine, 10? Like the tens are going for like 10,000. A nine would like pay for the box itself plus whatever other, you know, but if you get like a PSA eight or below or don't pull the LeBron, like it's a risk. And I think that's yeah. somewhere where like there's, there's, cards as an asset but then there's also like in some ways trading cards feel a lot like gambling um and 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 you you see that you know by law like these manufacturers have to kind of post the the odds right like you get that mic shot auto it's like one in how many you know chances to get that one of one um and so there's certainly and and it definitely kind of you know opening a pack and getting a hit feeds a pretty similar part of the brain as as like you know you know going all in in poker or you know like putting that slot in the putting that coin in the slot machine so um so i think everybody has to balance you know like there's um there's deciding kind of how you want to spend and whether you want to even um uh you want to touch the cards yourself i think one thing that's crazy is like now there are all these um like uh fractional um asset platforms where like i yeah. have two i have four shares in a first edition pokemon set on rally you know or i have like or like there's a new ads, there's like, a new doing... app there, there's a new app that came out today that's doing not just the crazy most valuable cards i think uh david i sent this to you uh josh i don't know if you've seen it it's called uh dibs and they're doing mm. just like you know good not like the rarest of the rare cards, but they're doing, you know, like popular cards, like a jar or a Zion rookie auto type oh, thing, fine. but not, not just the ones that are already worth, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, which is which rally and Otis and others have started to do. So it's, yeah. it's interesting to watch, like, you know, as there's the, the fractional shares thing has kind of taken off for these like ultra, ultra valuable uh, assets, whether it's in cards or cars or, yeah. skeletons of dinosaurs now you even see the down market version of that for like the everyday investor who's like cool you know that i, I don't have enough to buy a 136 share that's eight grand or whatever i can buy you know a hundred bucks of this thing um yeah. an investor i think you can even invest in a player portfolio it's just fascinating I mean, david funny. and i have been talking about this stuff probably for like what the last two or three weeks and the amount yeah. of new things that have sprouted up just from there and i don't know if yeah. it's, I'm, I'm looking at it more carefully since i've started getting a loop and top shot some of these things but you know for me it's like there's a never-ending amount of new opportunities to buy cards or buy these collectibles in a new format i also like half the stuff that you just talked about in terms of the the, the data or, or you know analytics that are out there about these packs like i never even thought about going down that rabbit hole so i know i'm i mean you know, it's the, the, the disadvantage that I'm at. Cause I'm just pulling whatever <laughs> pack that I see, whereas like, you know, exactly. Okay. Here's the list of everything that's for sale. You're like, okay, these cards or these packs or, or these boxes are going to like be the most fruitful of all of them. I think it's, it's, it's fascinating to see as loop 
and these other platforms pick up like mass market appeal, people are just going to start buying whatever because they don't really know. Yeah. Like as the as the hobby moves from dedicated like hobbyists on YouTube and whatnot to more of like everyday people with the power of their phone, that educational component I think is going to be you know people's superpower, right? And that's going to make those yeah. harder, more valuable packs move faster. You're seeing this with the repacks on on some of these apps. Like you know I've I learned. Spending the ninety dollars or two hundred bucks on a repack is going to get me better cards than yeah. one-off. You know, going I'm, hunting for a Brady rookie card. I'm yeah. curious. I'm curious on uh, PSAs and population count. What is so, uh, Josh? You just mentioned the tops LeBron, and uh, I think you mentioned three thousand of them. I I caught that number. Maybe that was right or wrong, but yeah, it's, I'm um, it's like. 3,500 PSA 10s in this one LeBron rookie card So that, so, that have been submitted through PSA so far. Right. So I guess the two questions would be is, what's the number that you determine scarce? Like, if there's 100 of them, if there's 5,000 of them, if there's 10, like, what, what's the number that actually the market then says that card is worth a disproportionate amount to others? And then two... If it's a newer card, I mean, a tops LeBron, if it's a rookie, he's been playing for a long time. So those have probably been graded. A Zion's wouldn't have been graded because there's a backlog. So I'm also curious of those 3,510s, are there 10,000 10s out there? And there's and they haven't been graded and they're sitting to be graded and therefore the, the price will actually go down? Or does it not work like that? Yeah, I, you know, I think an interesting example is like the Michael Jordan rookie, right? I think for a long time, um, what is it, the 86 Fleer or something like, for a long time, that pop count was like pretty stable. But then just last year, someone found a completely preserved palette or like like a, like a super case. I forget what the, you know, but it was like, I don't remember how many, like 24 boxes or something, you know, and so they're you know, and, um, and it sold for millions, um, uh, on auction. And then originally they were going to keep it together, but I think that they're, you know, if they sell it off, like that could flood the market Yeah. in terms of Michael Jordan's, right? Like, like some kind of discovery of unopened product. I know that at one point first edition Pokemon, like there was, there were some boxes that were found a few years ago that were kind of in storage and, and that kind of shifts. So when you get to these really old products, um, and things that maybe people have been trading almost, you know, stabilized. And then all of a sudden uh, an influx of, of product comes in, like it could change things like drastically, especially on these really rare, um, you know, on these, these, these really scarce um, uh, population counts. So, you know, I, I don't want to cop out of the question, but I think in a lot of ways, like what is scarce is, is relative to how many collectors there are, what the um you know what the sport is or or kind of what you know and then how old it is what the product is and kind of how interesting it is like there's there's a um there's an interesting um type of collecting that people do which is called collecting the rainbow of a certain player in a certain set and so you know you have different colored parallels and people will decide mm -hmm. like i like this player because he's on my team or whatever and i'm gonna get every single color and and there's like a rainbow parallel and there's usually a one of one and that means that if multiple people are collecting this rainbow 
only one of them is going to come out the winner mm-hmm. and not even necessarily either of them. Cause someone might've, you know, it might still be in a pack. It might've yeah. gotten thrown away. It, you know, someone might have it and just kind of have it in their, you know, in their attic and not know about it. So some of these cards have such low counts that people are like, they're like checking eBay all the time just to see if like, did my orange one come up because I need that one to complete the set. So is there really a one of, is there a one of one of every player or just top players? Um, I'm, that's hard to say. So a lot of the new sets, they will make a one of one of, of, of most cards in the checklist hmm. and they'll make it like, sometimes it's like a printing plate um or or they'll just number it and i think like numbering back in the old school days was was a little bit more difficult but now i think they've set up their printers where they can just like you know out of 99 out of 49 yeah. out of 299 there's they're right. they're like lebron they're lebron inserts that are like out of 2018 or you know like they'll just they'll just pick a number and they'll you know um so uh a, a lot of a lot of sets will have kind of one of ones of your main, um, your main players, and especially your main rookies in that set. But sometimes it depends on like, um, you know, is, is it an autograph or is it a patch or is it a patch and an autograph and and things like that. So, um, something you said about you know flooding flooding the market. Sorry to, to interrupt, but I, I think yeah. it's interesting because Dave and I talked about this is the amount of people that have a ton of these cards like in their attic or in storage. And, you know, does this resurgence of the market get people like, like David who did this last week, going in their attic, finding all of their old card collection, sitting there being like, I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I have. I don't know what this is worth, but <laughs> you talk about some of these cards that just like, they might be in a pack. They might be in someone's box. Like, I'm curious to see, you know, as the market continues to grow, if if we have if we run into some of that, or people, especially for some of these older products that you know might just be kept away in storage in a storage unit, like you know somebody's grandparents have a box of them in there, and like how that you know how that feeds into the the scarcity of especially the you know what the pre two thousand pro- card cards, like there's a lot of those that are worth their weight in gold because nobody has them, uh, but also. I, I- Marshall, I would say to that comment, like, and yes, I I did that. If I if I was doing this as a money play, I this is where I think the individual investor always gets less than probably what they should. If I was doing this as an individual, if I was doing this as a money play, it's too hard. To, you know, my five thousand yeah. cards or whatever, it's too hard. It's too yeah. hard to figure it out. It's too hard to grade. And if I was doing it for money play, I'd go to a collector and say, here you Sell go. It a lot. Yeah. 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 Give me 500 bucks or give me 5,000 or whatever the number is. And you guys, and I'm sure they know a few things that are in there that to yeah. the individual guy, they don't, but it is hard. And if PSA has got a backlog of a year, those older cards of people going in that want to have the nostalgia and do it, I think it would be hard for them to do it as a make money thing. I mean, I bought, I bought a, uh, yeah. I think like a, a giant bag of packs from some guy on eBay, like random, you know, 95 and earlier NBA, just assorted kind of That's crap. Cool. And I, it was just curious. Like when I, when I bought it, I was like, okay, I wonder if this is all crap or if this guy just has a ton of cards and he's willing to part with it on the off chance that like every once in a while, somebody's going to pull a Jordan or 
some card that's worth anything. I've been right. ripping the, I mean, I literally have like 50 of these packs. I've been ripping them. I have zero idea how to like value them <laughs> at all. And I have them in stacks and I'm like putting the ones I think would be valuable aside. I go on eBay and it's like 99 cents, a buck 50, like nothing. And I'm just like, man, that's the, the hard thing here is the, is the, uh, the value side, like the eBay, you know, search the recent sold listings. Like it's such a manual process. Like, is there any way, or Josh, have you seen anything or any platform that's like making that piece easier? Cause I think to David's point, yeah, it's impossible. Like going through it, 5,000 cards at this stage is, is not super yeah. feasible for most people, but is there a way right. to make that easier or yeah. anything you've seen? Yeah. I mean, um, that, you know, there was a, they call it the junk wax era. And I guess it was in like the nineties um, and early two thousands maybe, but like there was a time where like the products just weren't that great. The players weren't necessarily that great and they printed way too much and it, and it almost killed the market and then eBay came out and all that stuff. But like, um, so there was definitely kind of a lull in the hobby. And that's, I think partly what, what the, the, um, what the hobby is recovering from. And now it's reaching these new levels. Um, the two things that I know, and I haven't actually used them, like I'm not a, uh, I haven't sent any cards in, but there's um, check out my cards, comc.com. And then there's Starstock. Um, and so there, um, and then there's another one for high end where you can actually just send in your slabs and they'll just keep them in like a temperature controlled, temperature controlled insured thing. And then you can just sell them like without having to you know, go there. Um, but um but COMC, you can just send in singles, uh, like ungraded, just random singles, and they will store them and you, they'll take photos and process them and they'll put them up on your profile. And you can just send them like, hey, here's my link, check out my cards. And then people are like, oh, they can buy it. And, and they'll do like, you know, 99 cent or like cheaper cards. Um, and some people will actually have their own strategy where like they'll be watching the game and they'll see a player make a big move. They'll go on there, they'll find all the cheapest asks from people who just listed this cheap card they'll buy them up and then they'll just sell them right away back you know to people who come back in a few minutes and are buying it for a few dollars more and they'll just kind of like you know grind their way that's one like way penny to do it. stocks it's, penny stocks for card yeah collecting. yeah exactly or it's like you know uh front running the market or whatever they call it um yeah so my daughter's here um so then uh i'll be right there sweetie um, and then star stock, they're only taking rookies, but you can just basically send in your rookies, either ungraded or graded. And, and then you can list them. They'll, they'll take the photos and then that'll be part of your setup and, um, and people can buy them. And so, so that's definitely alleviating some of the, you know, like once I got into collecting, it was like, my wife was like, why are there so many boxes showing up and so many packages <laughs> and where are we going to store them with your shoes and all that stuff? So, um, so that's been a challenge, um, is, is. Because the reality is like you open a pack and probably 90% of it is worthless or practically worthless. Maybe those players wouldn't, wouldn't appreciate being said that, but like they're, it, that's how the product is designed, right? So you open a pack and most of the veterans are, are worth like cents if that, uh, and, and then the rookies are maybe worth, you know, of the rookie class, like maybe one or two of them are actually now worth money. And then some of them are just, you know, worth a dollar or two. And then you can get some inserts, but, but, it's quite rare to get something that's like really, really worth money unless you're buying the really premium um, boxes already. When it comes right, so, to... Oh, keep oh, going. No, no, keep I going. I wanted to answer a question about flooding the market. I think it's going to be an issue potentially in the future because 
now that that people have understood that collecting cards can be such a valuable um kind of long-term asset a lot of people are doing um sealed wax strategy which is they buy up boxes and they hold them and that's actually in some cases even a better investment than the cards than opening them right and so you know people who bought the luca prism year um Hmm. 18 19 i guess um you know, those boxes are what, like $6,000 now. So if you got them either at retail, hopefully, or you got them before this current pump, you know, and then if you hold them for longer, you know, like uh, maybe it'll be, um, you know, it could be more. And even this, uh, you know, last year's Prism, because it was on and Jaw got, got really expensive. Um, maybe it'll, maybe people lose interest in a few years, but then, you know, the nice thing is it's pretty stable. It's, it's still sealed. It, you know, it takes up a little space on the shelf or you can you know, get a storage unit. And so we may find years from now, right? Let's say Zion's in the Hall of Fame and people are like, oh, I know that there's how many thousand PSA 10s uh, of this, his thing. And then people just start pulling boxes out of the closet. People just start yeah. opening that. And that's going to be, that's going to throw the market a little bit off. So, mm. um, so that's, I think that's something that we got to think about. Um, looking forward partly because volumes have gone up now that that there's so much interest in the in the hobby um and that people are being much more strategic it's like you know i don't know that people when michael jordan was around were like yeah there were some collectors who were like yeah let me save this box and see what happens but but there just wasn't that mindset that there is now which is like wow this thing i have might be worth money maybe i shouldn't open it or maybe i should buy two and open one and then put the other one on the shelf and you know um so I've got a few boxes in the, you know, in the closet that I'm that I'm just gonna try and forget about, um, and that'll just be part of my portfolio. Is is like someone else and stuff. So let, let's close with, uh, and and Josh, you mentioned earlier about what is your strategy. So let's close with what your strategy is now for the 2021. And Marshall, I shared it with you earlier. My strategy after being, I mean, I am a novice. I was an expert in tops cards in 1984 and 1985 junk wax. Um, and, and learning the last couple of weeks again, I've determined my strategy now is to get 10 or 20 of the greatest players or people that I think made an important difference in the world and get their rookies, no matter their grade slab, but no matter the grade to give to my son. And so I've got up for eBay. We'll, we'll see what happens tomorrow when the bidding ends like a PSA four, but a Jesse Owens uh, rookie 1936 event from Munich that I don't care if it's a PSA one or 10 or four. I just want that from the history of it. Um, so that's, that's where, that's where I'm going to focus now. Not a, not a money thing, more of a family legacy thing and try to find those key people um, that have made a difference. Marshall, what's the strategy? And then Josh, your strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think for me is is learning more. As I said earlier, you know, a big sports fan, you know, I've always liked to find a way to make my interest, my business, in everything that I'm doing. So if I can, you know, find a way to pay the, for this thing to pay for itself, that's sort of what I'm looking for here. So it's education, and then it's like, you know, how can I hit a certain point of investment into, into the cards that starts to just fuel the further addiction and. 
you know, I think I still need to amass enough of a base that I can start to sell some things to then allow me to buy more. I've, you know, I've got a couple like Jaw and Lamelo rookies that you know hopefully are going to gather some value. I've got a couple of these like repack slabbed, you know, PSA nine, nine and a half Kobe and LeBrons. You know, if the Lakers win again this year, I think are going to obviously jump in value. Um, and for me, kind of like on Top Shot, which we didn't even get into, but you know, I made an initial investment, and I'm not trying to put any more dollars into it. I'm <laughs> trying to just like fuel the growth through. Yeah, I think I've turned like fourteen dollars into like twelve hundred bucks in a week, which like that's pretty good. You know, I'm never going to tap into like the big returns because you got to put money, you know, you got to spend money to make money. But I think for me, it's like a fun. It's like a fun thing on the side. It's instead of doing options on Robinhood, I don't really care about that. Like, I'd rather kind of take that same fun money and do something that like I can connect with my friends on, and also is like tied to a passion I have. To be clear, your uh, big returns that you're uh, dismissing. If my math is right, you did 90x in three days. So I think you're right on 14 bucks to 12 to 12. I mean, look, yeah, I understand it's not 1400 to 1.2 million, but. You, you, we'll take 90x in anything I'm that you do. Take like. that any day of the week. Oh yeah, <laughs> better than Bitcoin. Yeah. Better than Bitcoin right now. Uh, all right, Josh, give us the strategy. Yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely watched my strategy mature over time as I've kind of learned more about what I like to collect and what I enjoy. I mean, I think I'm always going to enjoy opening packs, whether that's virtually on loop with friends, where like you know the breakers opening for me and shipping it, or I'm trying to get them in the stores. And or order them online and I get to open it myself because there's just there's something special about that. And I, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, like if we can put together some some great assets that also give us joy, like that's the real win. Um, and sure, sure, there'll be heartaches where you kind of like open a box and it's just, you know, oh, we lost a little bit of money on there, but we move on. Um, I am uh, similar Marshall. I'm I'm, I'm trying to mix um, adding in some digital. I'm exploring that. So I, so I got in top shot. I, I bought some packs last year and went from $300 in spend to the portfolio says it's now worth like $100,000, which is wild. Um, and so we'll see. Wait, how you were like, you were like at like 40, it was like at 40 two days ago. Yeah. Well, was, you know, so it was at 300, 300 <laughs> and then turned it like 20 K and then 40 K 60. And then now it's at 90 something. I already withdrew <laughs> like $3,000. I was like, well, we'll take some money off the table. Um, Hang on, so hang on, that's hang part on, of hang on, hang on, hang on. To be clear, <laughs> it's at ninety or hundred, and you took three thousand off, and you said that you're just taking some money off the table. That's not that's that's taking dinner off the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, I took off ten x of my my original investment, which which yeah. felt okay. But um, that's right. I'll take that's more awesome. Off, and I'll take more off to buy more cards. You know, like today I was looking at. Okay, I have this LeBron moment. And it's worth as much as a LeBron rookie card. Like, would I rather have the moment or would mm. I rather have the rookie card? And really, I'd rather have both. But if I had to choose, like, I'm still kind of like, maybe I'd rather have that paper mm. and that slab. Now, you know, will the next generation thing, like, why would you collect that old piece of paper? Like, people are looking at, like, you get to watch this video of LeBron dunking versus just LeBron in a suit that, like, doesn't do anything. Like, maybe. Um, so, so I'm certainly interested in digital. I think I'm consolidating to fewer sports and fewer players just because I realized it's too much for me to manage, like, you know, having to send the cards in for grading and then have them back and then try and list them and sell them. So, so I, I'm realizing like, I'd rather just kind of um, collect a few players that I'm excited about that have some history for me 
Um, but I've noticed that like watching live sports is now a lot more fun when you have their cards and you're like, oh, okay, I've got a bunch of Luca rookies. Like I want to see you put up 60 this game because that's, that's actually really great. Or, you know, in the Super Bowl, I was kind of like, well, I've got a Brady rookie, but I've also have Mahomes rookies. Like, which one do I want to win? And it's a little bit like putting money on the game. Um, but uh, so that's something that I'm enjoying is like, you can have fun opening the packs. You can actually have fun just being, having a little bit, um, a skin in these different leagues and feeling like, oh, okay. Like if this player does well, I do well. And I get to kind of enjoy part of their rise and you feel like you've almost got stock in that player. So, um, yeah. And then also I'm, I'm doing some more of the fractional stuff where I'm like, okay, I like owning, I own just a handful of shares in, in, in the Jordan rookie year complete set uh, from Otis, I think, or somewhere else, you know, and I own some things in rally and I own some things in, I'm going to look into the collectible. So, um, even, even digital can, can change the way that we collect physical cards, yeah. right. They could be stored off site or, you know, you can own fractions of them. So, um, I'm having a lot of fun with it. You know, it'll continue to be a small part of my portfolio though. Um, top shot became a bigger part of my portfolio than I expected. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I think it's here to stay if you look at the number of fans out there and, uh, and the interest. Now that doesn't mean that card companies can screwed up by overprinting or, you know, um, you know, messing up with some of the supply demand stuff. But, uh, I think there's a realization that people are willing to invest in things that they care about. And one of the things we care about is sports. And that's The Bond. There's plenty more to come.